of the overriding theme in Paul's letter to the, his first letter to the Corinthian church, his overriding theme was about their conduct. Because uh, they, were, they were giving a lot of lip service to God, but their lives didn't reflect anything of Jesus in it. It was, it was there was kind of a, a, a tug of war thing going on because they had really great theology in their minds, and but yet making that transfer from what they knew to their hearts to where they could live it out, they were failing miserable at it. Their conduct didn't reflect anything about Jesus in their life. So what Paul was doing was he was calling them together to consecrate, set themselves aside, set themselves apart for God so God could use them through their life to bring others to know who Christ is, to reflect the glory of God in their lives. That's what, what Paul was writing the letter for because they'd really gotten sideways in all that they were doing. And so Paul was calling them back. He was saying, look, you've got to get your life in order here. You've got to quit messing around the way you're messing around and start reflecting the glory of Jesus in their life. And I'm pretty sure that the church in Corinth would have said something to the same effect that I've heard people say in church as, as long as I've been pastoring. They'll say something kind of like this. The things or, or how I live my life is none of your business. And what's the big deal? The things I'm doing... I'm not hurting anybody at all. So you can take a jog and mind your own business because it's none of your business what I do. And you know, that's kind of a prevalent thought that's going through a lot of people's mind in the church. I mean, you know, one of the... Do you know what the most famous verse in the world is now? It used to be John 3.16. But now it's um, Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. Quit judging me is what they say. You have no right to judge me. Who are you to judge me? That's what they say. But Paul's kind of like, he's a smart cookie. And when he wrote his letter to the Galatian church, he was writing to them about some some very significant things. And so, actually, I mean, when he was writing to this church in in Corinth, chapter 5, he says, but now I'm writing to you Uh, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. So you see what Paul's saying is, yeah, we don't have a right to judge unbelievers or non-believers. That's not our job. That's God's job. We need to keep our mouths shut. Sometimes what we do, though, is we get kind of all wrapped up because we're looking at people who are misbehaving according to God's word, but yet they have no clue what it says, and we're throwing judgment on people who aren't even Christ followers, and we're saying they're they're shameful. These are sinful behaviors from people. How could they do such immoral things? Well, the truth is, is the reason that they do those immoral things is that they're just doing what comes naturally to them. The natural man is sinful. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But in the church, Paul's saying, we have a responsibility in the church 
to judge one another. Now, not in a condemning way. Because if you go back and you look at Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore now there, are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means God's not going to condemn them. We're not going to condemn them. The, the meaning behind that judgment is that we hold each other accountable to the things that God has called us to do. When we see someone stepping out of bounds, according to God's word, we have a responsibility to come up to them in truth and grace. You can't have one without the other. You have to serve it on the platter. Truth and grace. We come to them and we say, listen, here's what I've noticed. What's going on in your life? Why are you headed in this direction? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? That's our job within the church. And, and yet, the problem is that we have people living in the church with unrepentant sin in their heart. And they would say that this teaching of Paul's, this one right here, they would want to do one of three things. First of all, they'd say it was really harsh. He's really mean. That's not even nice. So then the second thing they'd want to do is they'd either want to justify their behavior by saying that Paul's teaching was for a different era and for a different time because the church was being established at that time. So they had to set some really stringent uh, guidelines on how the church was supposed to behave and how they were supposed to operate among each other. But it's, it's not applicable to us today because God's definitely got a different agenda for the church. Just look at her. That'd be the second justification they'd have. The third thing they would do is they would say, I don't like that verse, so they'd take a, a black marker and they'd mark it out of the verse or cut it out and throw it away. Because if it's not there and I don't read it, then I don't have to obey it. Right? But I want you to hear me because um, God doesn't have a different agenda for His church. And you're, you may be saying, but... You know what, Pastor Ken, there are times when I sin. So is the church always on the look for me to, you know, uh, in, in my life, and my sinning, and are they going to come and judge me? Because that would be a, a kind of a fearful thing, wouldn't it? And by the way, if that's what the church is supposed to do, I would expect a line of all of you to be standing, going into my office, coming in to say, hey, what's going on in this area of your life? What's going on over here? What's going on over there? God's not called us to be standing in judgment over one another in that way. It's an accountability issue that he's calling us to. And it's really important. Um, and so we have people, we have people, we have two people who are claiming to be Christ followers. I'm going to say one group of people are Christ followers. And you know what I mean by that. That they read the word of God. They step into it, they obey it, and they're continually moving on in sanctification, growing in Christ all the time. They will have some setbacks, but by and large, they're moving that way with Jesus. Then we have other people who call themselves Christians, and that's only a name, and they have maybe some kind of a sin going on in their life that is a repetitive sin. It's unrepentant. In other words, what they're saying is, I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care and I'm going to keep on doing it. I don't care what God says about it. I'm still going to do it and I don't care. That's the difference between a Christ follower who has a repentant heart and re repents of their sin on a continual basis and a Christian 
who has sin in their life that they don't care about, they're not going to repent about it and they're going to tell you to mind your own business. And I want you to hear me this morning. Clearly, there's a difference between those two people. One's heart is soft and tender towards God. The other heart is calloused and cold, not just to the things of God, but to God's people. They like to keep them at arm's length. They like to look good by showing up, but they really don't want to grow in that relationship with Jesus. Here's what we do. So for a Christ follower... We acknowledge our sin. We seek forgiveness. Again, we seek holy living. And the holy living becomes a testimony of God's grace. For the unrepentant heart, it really becomes a stain on the church, on the bride of Christ. In Galatians, now Galatians 6, Paul said this, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I want you to understand how he wrote this, who he was writing it to. He was not writing this to unbelievers. He was writing this to the church. He's saying to the church, this is a big deal. You can't keep living in your flesh and sowing out of your flesh because what you're going to reap out of that is going to be condemnation. It's, going, it's not going to be a good thing spiritually. So start sowing in the Spirit so that out of the Spirit you will reap the blessings of God not only into your life but into body life, the life of the church. He's calling us to a place of repentance. He's calling us. He wants us to come back to the church so that as, as Jesus, the bridegroom, finds His bride, the church, holy and presentable, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. Because he, Paul always talks about Jesus as being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Let me, let me help you understand that for those of you who don't know that language. Husband and wife. Husband and wife relationship. They're supposed to have this husband and wife relationship. And Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians church, he picked up on that theme that Jesus had quite often. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. That's who we are to be to Jesus. Holy without blemish. Do you feel holy? Me either. (laughs) But am I holy? Yes, I am. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus makes me holy. That's where it all comes from. That's where it all starts at. Our personal conduct makes up the church. You can't live a duplicitous... You can't live live two kind of lives. (laughs) This thing really messes me up sometimes, I'm just telling you. 
You can't on one hand say, I love Jesus. And then walk out the door and say, I love my sin. They don't mix together. And the Spirit of God is going to press hard on you. And you will do one of two things. You will either fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repent of that sin and come back to Jesus. Or you are going to distance yourself from God altogether. You're going to push yourself away. You do not want to have anything to do with God. And so as our personal lives, as we live our personal lives, they can't be any different than how we as a church function. Because if you are messed up, if your life is a mess spiritually, if you are not keeping in tune, walking with God, confessing your sin, living by the grace of God every day, we as a church cannot operate and function the way that Christ meant for us to do it. Your, your work, your impact, your thoughts, your deeds impact the greater church. Does anybody here like eating cottage cheese? Put up your hand way high. Yeah, you're my friends. Let me ask you one question, though. If you opened up the container of cottage cheese and there was a patch in there about this big around that was moldy, are you going to dig in and eat it? No. Why? Because that mold's going to spoil the whole thing. And you want nothing to do with that, so you take the whole container and you throw it in the trash. Unfortunately, that's what happens when we do not live holy lives before a holy God. We become the mold in the church. Now, maybe we're more like cheese and God will just cut the the moldy part off and throw it to the dog to eat and move on. Because you can do that with cheese. I love cheese. Just cut the mold off. I mean, like I've got like 14 pounds in my office of mold. I'm just kidding. I don't. The premise is this, that we are to live a holy life, which in turn will produce a holy church, which in turn will draw people to come and find out why we live differently than they do. That's what holiness is about. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God, about the glory of Jesus, about Jesus' name being lifted up. That's what holiness produces. And yet we we want to be holy when we walk in through those doors back there and grab our holy cup of coffee and put our holy creamer in it and find our holy seat to sit in and sing our holy songs and give a holy handshake and a holy kiss to the people around us. But when we walk out the holy doors, we leave the holiness in the building. Yeah, that's right. That is NG, not good. You have to take it with you wherever you go because your personal holiness affects the holiness of the church. And that's what God's calling us to. Now, what we do matters. And what we do in private matters and is just as important as what we do in public. The way you behave at home should reflect the way you behave with other people in this church. The way that you talk to the pastors, the elders, the people you worship with here in this church should reflect the way you talk to people outside the walls of the community of faith. There should be nothing in it that would anybody be able to differentiate how we are living. They couldn't say that we're pharisaical, that we do one thing, we say one thing, but we live another life over here that's totally different. We can't do that. Not if we're going to be the bride of Christ. And that leads me right into 
where we're going to be today. Now, I want to thank um, Tony. I, I heard a lot of people said to me like, you know, that Tony Leonard's a funny guy. Who would have ever known? He's so stoic. I mean, he walks into church and he goes, hey, I am. <laughs> the military Tony. But you give him the word of God and he makes it dance and come alive and feed your soul. Amen? Amen. I'm so thankful that we have guys like John and Sean and Tony that when I'm tired or I'm out of town, they can step up and they can deliver better than I do. I praise God for that. And so this, Tony took a big chunk of it, but I'm, I'm stepping back one verse. I'm not going to start in, in chapter 16. I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verse 58. And that's going to lead us into chapter 16. And here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I'm going to tell you something. We were sitting in, in my office just before prayer time, and I said, I said fed staff instead of steadfast. And um, one of the girls on the worship team that sings with us, I won't mention her name, she's married to Brady. She just said, make sure you don't say stud fast. I'm going to say it. Brady, you're a stud. I got it out of my system. So as we take a look at this one verse, the thing that we hit on first is the therefore. Every time you find that in Scripture, you have to go like, okay, that word right there is pointing to something. It's pointing something back from where we just came from. So what's it pointing back to? What's the therefore, therefore? Because it's really important. It, it's connecting thoughts here of what's going on. And, and that, that therefore is what makes our work or our labor fruitful. That's the big picture. Is it makes our labor fruitful. What we do for God, it makes it fruitful. And that is just simply that because Jesus has secured victory over death and the effects of sin. And what follows after that is based on what came before the therefore. The good news for us is that death will never have the last word in our lives. It doesn't get to have the last word because of what Jesus did. So what is it that Jesus did? I heard some of you whispering that to one another. I wonder what Jesus did. Here's what he did. Look at verses 56 and 57. The death of, or the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Be, uh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus did is that he went to the, you guys all know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway because I don't want to miss out just in case somebody's been sleeping the last 10 years in this church is that we know that when Jesus went to the cross, He died on the cross, His blood was shed for our sins because the Bible said that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. But it, the, the blood that had to be shed had to come from a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus lived three years, or ministering three years on this planet. He lived for 33 years on this planet. And, and in those, that His lifetime, He never sinned one time. He never had an evil thought. 
He never had a lustful thought. He never told a lie. He never stole anything. He never cursed when he smashed his finger with a hammer. He never got angry that was not holy or righteous anger. He never sinned one time. And so when he went to the cross and he would die in our place, his blood was shed, he was buried in the grave, and on the third day, we know that his sacrifice was accepted because on the third day, God raised him to life. That means that what Jesus did on the cross was acceptable to God on our behalf. The resurrection made it all like, yeah, that's what happened. And so that's why why Paul goes back and he quotes that, that passage that comes out of the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone because death no longer has its, its clutches on our life. We don't fear death anymore. We may not look forward to the journey, but on the other side of death is life, real life that we've never known before. We'll have resurrected bodies. You will all be bald just like me. Perfect. Those little limps that you have, they're going to go away. That high blood pressure pill you're taking, you will take no more. You will never suffer from gout again. You will never have to wear a retainer in your mouth that makes you sound like you've had a stroke. All of it's going to be perfect. Because we will be resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected. And that's what the therefore is there for. Because of what Jesus did for us. He he says that the reality of what Christ has done through his resurrection is that the church will be resurrected one day. Therefore, we need to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But what does that really mean to you and me? I mean, we read those words and go, yeah, that's cool. Let's go home and get a burger. You know, often people think, when they think about the work of the Lord, is what takes place in this building. Or maybe even bringing it a little narrower, maybe what takes place in the offices out here Monday through Saturday. That's the work of God. God's work is being done by the professionals out there. They're the professional God guys. You got a God problem, go see a God guy. Because they, they're, they're the professionals and they're doing the work of the Lord. Well, all right. So if you haven't been around much, the church is not a building. It's called the ecclesia. It's a gathering of people with a common purpose and a common goal. And that purpose and goal is Jesus and him crucified to the world. That's what we are. We are the church. And so when he talks about the work of the Lord being done in the church, it's not me. I just happen to get paid because I can't do any other job. I get to sit in here and do my job in here and help you guys learn how to do the job that God's called you to do. That's the work of the Lord. We're all involved in the work of the Lord. We're in this together. Paul's bringing to our attention that as a redeemed Christ follower and the recipients of his victory over sin and death, We are therefore to remain steadfast and immovable. Now, what does steadfast mean? 
it, it, it's built within the context of communities where he's starting at, steadfastness. We live in community, and there's an accountability that we have to each other. Remember when I talked about what Paul said earlier, that we're to judge one another, hold each other accountable for the way we live our lives? That's what he's getting at here, is to be steadfast and accountable to one another in the church. And when we're living our lives in close proximity of each other, we are less likely to wander away from the truth and step into sinful behavior. If you only come here on Sunday and you don't show up again till the next Sunday or maybe you go, oops, missed the Sunday or maybe it's three Sundays before you get here again. There's a lot of time in there where you're not connecting with the body of Christ where you can step into sinful behavior. And the problem with sinful behavior is when it's not dealt with immediately, it starts to form a habit in our lives. And trying to uproot sinful behavior habits out of our life is so difficult. It's hard. That's why we're to be with one another. That's why we're to worship with one another. That's why we're supposed to be steadfast in all that we're doing. The amazing thing to me is that when I hear people say, you know what, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. I'm going, now wait a minute. That's like somebody walking up to me and going, man, you are a cool dude, but I can't stand your wife. They'd get a knuckle sandwich in a heartbeat. I mean, I would bust out their two front teeth. I would kick them in the shin. And then I'd push them to the ground and I'd say, don't you ever talk about my wife that way. She is precious to me. And guess what? What do you think Jesus thinks about people that say that? He's going like, you can't have one without the other. We're a package deal. We go together. And, and so when we, when we think about those people that are talking about that kind of a thing, because what they really are saying, and I've heard this so many times, is they go like, you know, when I really want to go to church, I go up into the mountains and I take my Bible and I sit down and I start reading in like, you know, um, the book of James. Because it's such a, a well-packed book. It really teaches me how to control my tongue. And, and you know, and, and, and how I sometimes I'll, I'll say one thing and I'm like a, a spring. Can a spring produce both fresh water and salt water? No, no, it can't be that way. So I have... And, and they start going through this. And I'm going like, hold on one second right now. I want to I ask you a question. So you, you're saying to me that you really believe in Jesus, but you can't stand the church. That's right. Well, then take your Bible and from the Gospels all the way back to Revelation, rip that part out of your Bible and take it and throw it in the fire and burn it because that's all about the bride of Christ. Just get rid of it. You don't need it anymore if you don't believe in the body. You don't need it anymore if you don't think that the bride of Christ is important. Because that all is speaking about what we do together in community. In the context of being here, gathered together to rub one another the wrong way. So that we start to rub each other the right way like iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another. That's what God's calling us to. Steadfastness starts with the understanding and knowledge that we are not winning this thing called life in and of our own accord. It's not something I do that makes me win. It's rather that we have already won because Jesus won it for us on the cross. We can just stop striving to, to impress God, striving to impress others. 
we no longer have to come to the place where we're saying to one another, look what I've done. Look at all these great deeds I've done. Look how righteous and holy I am. We don't have to go to God and go like, listen, I've gone on a mission trip. I've given thousands of dollars to the poor. I've been serving at the church. I go in and I straighten things up. I help out with kids' church. I shovel the sidewalks. Look how good I am, God. Look at all my righteous deeds before you. And God's going like, those are just nothing but filthy rags. They're oil-soaked, oil-stained rags that that are are worthless. Throw them in the trash can because they don't do anything. Now, if you want something of holiness and righteousness, then come over here and remain steadfast in my son because his righteousness, his holiness is what counts in your life. Nothing that you've done. And so because Jesus won for us on the cross, we can stop trying to be the winners because we're already winners without striving for anything. We've already won. And that's what steadfast means. It means, you know, that, that we need to put our faith roots deep into the truth and not move away from it no matter what the new thinking of our culture tells us. Our culture is coming at you and telling you all kinds of stuff that is contrary to the Word of God. And if you just keep listening to that and believing it, it's going to suck you in and you're going to start thinking wrongly and then you'll behave Wrongly. Jesus just wants a church, a bride that is awesome. And in Colossians 1, 22 through 23, this is what Paul wrote. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him... If indeed you continue in the faith, now get this, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul comes back, Paul intertwines his letters together in in a great way. There, There is this nuance of him doing that. And so to be steadfast, that's what it means. It means that we are not being moved anywhere. Our faith roots are deep in the truth of God in there hooking on and holding on for the long haul. And it's not that we're hanging on just barely, it's that we're thriving because out of those roots comes the nutrients of the Holy Spirit into our lives to grow us to be producing fruit the way God wants us to. One of the great things, and Jesus did a lot of great things for His disciples, but I think one of the big, really big issues that Jesus did for His disciples is He taught them how to pray. They were not foreigners to prayer. It wasn't like they'd never heard anybody pray before. It wasn't like they hadn't learned prayers. They learned prayers out of the Old Testament that they would memorize and recite when they went to the temple. They would hear the Levites and the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees standing on the street corners, praying loudly in a loud voice. And, and, and so they're looking at all these people praying around it because prayer was an important aspect of the Jewish culture in worshiping God. But when they heard Jesus pray, they were like, they're going there, that's crazy. You talk to God like he's right here. Like you know him personally. Like you have a relationship with him. Jesus is going, well, he is my dad. Kind of makes sense. You talk to your dad, have a personal relationship with him. Yeah, yeah. And so they're going like, can you teach us to pray like you pray? And Jesus is going like, you bet you boys. 
And we know that prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And specifically in the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that Jesus taught in that that I think we have really missed the great value and truth in it is when Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We think of heaven as there and then. When I cross over the threshold of this life, I'm going to enter into heaven. I'm going to enter into the joy of my Lord. I'm going to experience all the things in heaven that I'd never be able to experience on earth. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he goes, no, 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 no. There is an aspect of heaven that you get to enjoy here on earth. When you're in relationship with me, we bring heaven to earth. That's what we do. God's kingdom come to earth. His will be done. Like in heaven, it's going to be done here on earth. That's going to be fully in the same? No. Because we still live in a sinful world. We still commit sin. We still have to deal with, with uh, sin and death. And we have to deal with um, guilt. We have to do, deal with shame. All, none of those things will ever be a part of our life once we get into heaven. We will be absolutely 100% perfect. But God, Jesus is saying there are aspects of God's kingdom that we want to bring. And for you to enjoy while you are still on earth. Now, do you want some of God's kingdom in your house? You better. Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, bring it in. Bring it on. Bring the kingdom to your home. Then take it with you when you go to work. Then take it with you when you're driving the car. Take it with you when you decide what movie you're going to watch. Take it wherever you go. Bring God's kingdom to earth here and now. It's not just for there and then. It's for here and now. And that, that is that big thing that, that, that Jesus taught his disciples. Because... Much of the heavenly kingdom that we can experience here and now is predicated on the our reality of being stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's where the kingdom of God comes in is when we are rooted firmly on the gospel of Jesus. Now let's go back to our passage for today. Better keep an eye on the time. Wow, better move it along. Um. So we're to be steadfast and immovable. What is immovable? What what does it mean? It doesn't mean that you sit still and do nothing. It doesn't mean that you are not active in in what God's calling you to do. It doesn't mean you you just stay in bed all day because you're afraid of lions out on the street. It means not to shift from the hope of the gospel. When circumstances in life becomes difficult and even almost unbearable, don't shift your, your, your lifeline away from the hope of Jesus, shift it off onto other things that you believe will give you hope. And those things that we often, when we get into the crunch of life, we take a look and we say, only if I had more money, only if I had better friends, only if my marriage was better, only if my kids were doing better. And so we we take all those things and we add them up, and the equation is, at the end of it, we say, I have to try harder. I have to do more. Because we've taken our eyes off the hope of the gospel that Jesus has already done it for us and now we're trying to do it more, harder so that we get better results. The problem is is that when you put all that time, energy and effort into these monetary things and into the relationships, they may be good for a little bit but eventually they run dry and it, it turns like a bitter pill in your mouth. And I'm telling you right now, if you're looking for relationships or for your spouse to make your life better you're going to be disappointed because they are going to let you down and you'll be right back where you are. It all is on Jesus. In Psalm 62, 1 and 2, it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. 
From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. We're to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I've already said people think that in the church the work of the Lord is done by professionals. That you're a pastor or an international worker, the nonprofit organization, you get paid to do the work of the Lord. But that is not the full work of the Lord. That's just a part of it. Every person who has stepped into faith is called to work for the Lord. And a small part of that is teaching and preaching and sharing your faith. In the larger context of life, the work of the Lord really falls on our everyday mundane routine life. The work of the Lord is when you get up in the morning and you head off to work, you make a choice when you go to work. Am I going to go to work with Jesus or am I going to go to work in the flesh? That's the choice you have to make every day. Because you can't make it a one-day thing. Go like, from now on, every day when I get up, I'm going to go to work with Jesus. I'm not going to ask him to come along, but I'm just going to go. And I'm going to tell you who's going to be waiting for you at your workplace when you open up the door to walk into work. Your flesh is going to be standing right there and go, come on in, bubby. We're going to go do some stuff now. It's going to be fun. It's not going to be holy. It's not going to be righteous. We're going to do some stuff. And it really gets, gets us kind of in a place where we're messed up. When we do the work of Jesus, we demonstrate that no matter how bad things get in our work, we press on. We do the work of Jesus when we demonstrate that in spite of our lazy co-worker and bad working conditions, I'm going to give up my best every day to Jesus. We do the work of the Lord when we bring a sense of purpose to a purposeless place. When we come as the light of Jesus and when we give people the sense of worth, that is the work of the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So the person that goes and builds houses, they should go as a Christ follower and build that house for Jesus. This is the house Jesus is going to live in when I leave. Every nail that I drive into this house is for Jesus. The person who goes and works in the office where they do mundane things and there is no excitement in what they are doing. When they go into that office, they bring the excitement and the joy of Jesus into that office situation because they are doing it for Jesus. And, and probably the greatest of all the jobs that anybody could ever have is being a parent. That is the work of the Lord. Teaching and training your children what it means to follow Jesus at all costs. Not just when it's easy. And you know, um, there's no greater, greater work than teaching your children who Jesus is and how much he loves them. It's a huge responsibility to show them what it means to live every moment with Jesus. And it's a difficult task to live a life in Christ before them in every aspect of dealing with the uncertainty of our times. Now this is my personal opinion. I'm sharing my opinion. And so if you don't like what I'm saying, send your email to wrccjohnekman at gmail.com. My personal opinion is that the unsung hero in our communities and in our church are stay-at-home moms. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that a lot of moms have to go to work in order to make ends meet. 
because it's difficult to really put it all together and have enough food on the table, pay the power bill, do all the stuff that we want to do and be able to do that. So there are parents, there are moms that are going like, I wish I never had to go to work for a single day, but I have to in order for us to survive. And I'm sorry that that's where you're at in life. And I pray God's blessing upon you. But for those moms who have said, regardless of what the economy does, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what we're missing out on, I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom and I'm going to raise our children. Because you know what? They never get any recognition. They don't get a, a Christmas bonus. They don't get to take an extra day off with pay. They don't ever get a raise. They don't ever get any of the perks. And they do it and they are never paid. And I want to say to you, stay-at-home moms, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because you are doing more for our community than what you could ever imagine. And I'm not saying bad things about you that have to work. I know your heart wants to be with your kids. But there are some people who are just going, I don't care what the cost is, I'm staying home. That is the greatest job in the world. And one of the most difficult ones. That's why God made me a man and not a stay-at-home mom. I'm a bit of a sissy. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. When you go back to work, your work, uh, back to your work, do not see it simply as a way by which you are earning a living. It has been given to you as an opportunity for you to have a ministry in which you witness. You demonstrate a changed life, a heart at peace, the radiant joy of fellowship with the living God on your face, and the love pouring out of your heart to those who, like you, have struggled through and uh, the lost frequently in the rat race of life. That is what God sends us out to do as Christ's followers. He has given us a work, not that we might make notable achievements, which men applaud, and in which we make a name for ourselves. What God looks for is how we're behaving towards others. How do we show a love, loving spirit, a gracious, forgiving attitude, a willingness to return good for evil, the ability to speak a word of relief to those who are, in, who are prisoners of, those, of their own habits, to set free those who are oppressed by wrong, hateful attitudes, to bind up the brokenhearted and to open the eyes of the blind. That is the work of the Lord. That is why God gives us contact with others. That why has, is why God has given us work. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Once again, Paul is saying that because you know Jesus has secured victory over sin and death, everything you do will have eternal implications. There is nothing a believer does that doesn't matter. Every word, every deed, every kind act, every word of encouragement, every warm touch on the back, every, every hand held in a time of crying, carries with it eternal value. We cannot get into the idea that we have no influence or that our little acts of kindness are simply slipping through the floors of the crack of life and nobody ever notices. Because every time we tell someone that we're praying for them and they experience the presence of Jesus in their, in their life, they get a taste of heaven on earth. You may not think that anyone is watching, but your Father in heaven is taking note and will reward you. When you give more at your workplace than you get paid for, God knows it. When you bring light into a dark situation, 
Jesus is right there. When you refuse to turn, return evil for evil, God is present. And every deed is then an act of eternal value. Even though we are weak, we will be strong. Even though we are foolish, we will be wise. Even though we are useless, we will be missional. Even though we are slaves, we are of royal bloodline. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus has won the victory over death and sin, we live and bask in the present work of Jesus, his kingdom here and now, to a world that needs the light of Jesus shined in the everyday activity of life, the dark places of this world. Jesus is the hope of the nations. Amen? Let me take you to the reflective questions quickly. The job that you have in the place that God has placed you in is not accidental. You're not doing what God called you to do just because you stumbled upon it. God has been moving and directing your life and he wants you to be effectual for his kingdom. So what difference has Jesus' victory made in the way that you live your life with your co-workers and non-believers? Sometimes we get ourselves onto shifting ground. Sometimes we hear something that sounds true-ish and we start to believe it and we start to investigate it. And what we've done is we've taken just just a slight step off of center from Jesus and now we're headed down to a path that is going to lead us far from Christ. So what thing or area of your life do you find it difficult to be steadfast and immovable? Where is it that you're going like, I'm always drawn that way? God's calling us always to make adjustments in our life. So what one or two steps can you take in your life to make the everyday, ordinary routine of work the work of the Lord? How can you do have eternal value? And lastly, how is God's kingdom and his will being done here and now on earth as it is in heaven, in your world or in your life? Where do you see God's kingdom here and now rather than waiting for it there and there? Our Father, we thank you. You are our tower, our rock, our refuge, our strong tower that we run to. In you, we have everything we need. And so we celebrate today the work of Jesus in our life. And help us as we go out the doors to live our lives as though we had all of us walking with each other uh, as Christ followers, that we weren't by ourselves in the workplace, that we weren't by ourselves at home, that every deed, every act, every thought would reflect the glory of you in our lives because we want as a whole church to be blameless and spotless before the coming of our King. We thank you that you have given us the victory. We can stop trying and we can start being because you have done the winning and we have already won through you. So thank you for doing that in our lives. Continue to impress upon us the reality of the resurrection for us so that we can live free to do what you've called us to do. We don't worry anymore. Thank you for that, Jesus. We pray in your great name. Amen.